0: What is the most incredible thing you have ever seen God do? I mean, something that was unmistakably, undeniably the hand of God. I could, I could tell you story after story in ministry of lives being transformed through the gospel by Jesus. I mean, people you would never think would get saved. Roger, I just heard you. You're probably, I don't know where you are. But you're, uh, there you are, you're an example of that. I mean, many of us, uh, I I mean, people who would never, you would never think would get saved. I've seen hearts changed, radically saved. I've seen circumstances altered. I've seen marriages restored. I've seen lives healed. Why? Why does God do this? What is is the motive behind these things? Or, Or to say it this way, why does God act on behalf of his people? I think it's the same reason he does literally everything that he does, which we're going to get to. So no spoilers right now. Let's dig into the text. Go ahead and turn to Exodus. We're continuing our series in the life of Moses. And just to give you a quick recap, Moses called by God to lead his people Israel out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. And so he appears before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he says, let my people Go And Pharaoh says, "Mm, nah, nah, I don't think so. Who is this God? Who is this Yahweh? I've never heard of Yahweh. We have a lot of gods. I've never heard of Yahweh. So why should we listen to Yahweh? Why should we do what he says? I do not know this Yahweh, this Lord. Mm, Famous last words. Well, sure enough, he does not release the people. And not only does he not release the people, he actually increases their burdens. And so the people are angry, Pharaoh's angry, the leaders of the people are angry, Moses and Aaron are angry, everybody's angry. And now, it's go time for God. It's game on, it's time for God to step, it, step up. It's time for God to act on behalf of his people. And that's where we find ourselves in, Mo, in Exodus chapter 7. So go ahead and turn there. Verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and I will bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Those are the plagues. And the Egyptians shall, underline this, shall know that I am the Lord. You're going to hear that over and over and over. They shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and I bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old. Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So if you Our 70s, 80s, 90s, folks, you are in the prime of your life. The best years are ahead of you. God can use and does use everyone. Now listen, God is sending Moses and Aaron to speak to Pharaoh as his representatives, representatives of the one true God. But God tells them that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. It's this Hebrew word kavod. Pharaoh would have a kavod Heart literally means heavy heart. Now, not heavy heart like we think. Oh, he has a heavy heart. He's sad. This is a Hebrew idiom: heavy heart meaning stubborn, obstinate, refusing to budge. If someone comes up to you and says, "Oh, go kick a rock," that's not a nice. Don't say that. It's not a nice thing to say. What they're saying is, if you kick a rock, a large immovable rock, the rock's not going to move. You know what will move? your foot, your bones, as they crack and fracture and, and, and are destroyed. So the rock won't budge, and Pharaoh has a kabod, heavy heart. He doesn't have a soft heart. It is calloused, refusing to budge in his stubborn pride. It's hardened. Now, is it hardened by God, or is it hardened by Pharaoh himself? Yes. Now, more on that next week, but the narrative is emphasizing both The culpability and guilt of Pharaoh and the sovereignty of God. So, the Lord says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and by my hand I will perform great signs and wonders. I will enact great acts of judgment. God is declaring that he would now show his glory. Signs of his covenant love toward his people and wonders that prove his awesome might and sovereign power. And so they would respond, the Egyptians and the Israelites, they would respond that they would be in awe of who he is. They would acknowledge the Lord God as holy, as God alone, either in faith or in judgment. So God says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Douglas Stewart says it this way, it is one thing when a people acknowledges the greatness of their own God. It is yet another when grudgingly yet inescapably a pagan people acknowledges the supremacy of a God they had previously never even heard of. Now that's a missions quote because there are so many people in our world and in our neighborhoods who know nothing of God. Nothing. Oh, they may have heard of Jesus, but they don't know who Jesus is. And there are Billions of people, literally billions in our world who had known nothing. They've never even heard the name of Jesus. Now, the word here in Hebrew is the word yada. We saw that last week. It's, it's not just to know, like to gain knowledge. It's to know by experience. So what is it that the Lord wants them to know? Him. He wants people to know Him. To know God experientially in relationship with him is the most rewarding, most satisfying, most fulfilling thing we could ever experience. To know God and to see and savor his awesome, breathtaking glory, there's nothing else like it, folks. That's what we are created to do. That's what he wants. We want to know. He wants us to know and experience him we saw the definition last week of glory. I love this. Glory is the outward display, the outward working of the holy character of God. It's the going public of who he is. It's this Hebrew word, kavod. Hmm, interesting. Meaning again, heaviness, weightiness. Now, if I walk into a room I'm not going to command attention from the room because I don't have a weighty presence. If you walk into a room, I mean, maybe you have more kvot than I do. I don't know. But people aren't going to like, you know, and and look, oh, it's Jared. No. Now, if the president or Tom Cruise or Oprah or I don't know, anyone famous with their, you know, big entourage, they walk in. First of all, Tom Cruise is Scientologist, so that would be fascinating and unbelievable that he's here at a Christian church. But I digress. They would command attention. I guarantee all of you would look, oh, your latest Mission Impossible was awesome. Your new one's kind of meh. You know, and they would command attention, command glory, because they have a weighty presence, a cavode about them that is more than we have. Or to to put it this way, let's get scientific. Everything that has mass in our universe, everything that's made of physical matter has mass, right? Everything that has mass has gravity. You actually have a gravitational pull. Did you realize that? So if you are out in the vacuum of space and a pop can floats by, it's going to be drawn to you because it has less mass than you. So you have greater gravitational pull, you're going to draw it to yourself. Everything that has mass has gravity. Everything that has cavode, weightiness, draws things to itself. Now why don't we, you know, why aren't things attracted to us right now? Because the earth has billions of times more mass, more weight, more cavode than we do. So our kavod, our glory, our weightiness compared to the earth's is nothing. It's insignificant. We don't draw anything to ourselves comparatively. Someone with more kavod would theoretically draw people to himself and should draw people to himself. Let me give you one more illustration. Imagine if I had a water basin here and I take a little pebble and I bloop. It'll make a little splash, a little cute, like little, little, little splash. But if I take a big, Hunk and rock, and I drop it in, what's going to happen? Everyone in the first couple rows are going to be really upset with me, <laughs> which is funny because, you know, a lot of times we don't have people sit in the front row. I don't know why people don't sit in the front row. I always tell them, listen, this isn't World. We don't have a splash zone. <laughs> but in this illustration, we would. <laughs> so you're welcome, Wenzels. I'm not doing this illustration. Because they would get doused with water. They would get splashed because the big rock, the big boulder has more weightiness, more cavode, and therefore more splash, more impact on people, more overflow, more coverage. You see where I'm going with this? The larger Cavode, the more glory, the greater impact. We have a small finite amount of kavod, amount of glory. God has infinite Cavode, infinite glory. Yet sometimes we act like our glory supersedes his. We seek to rob God of his glory when our glory really doesn't even compare. And this is what Pharaoh and the Egyptians were doing here. This is what we do in our sin all the time. We try to rob God of his glory and substitute our own. Now, remember the word for hardened? Well, what is it? Kavod. Hmm. Is there something here? Yes, Pharaoh had a cavode heart, a heavy, stubborn heart. His heart was obstinate because he refused to relinquish his puny little glory to acknowledge God's infinite glory. He would not budge his own glory for God. See, to give God glory, you must give up your own. He must increase, I must decrease. Or say it this way, decrease you to increase him. And we were created to know the Lord, yet we get in our own way in that pursuit all the time. And God's display of his power here, his holiness, his preservation and redemption of his people, all things designed to bring him glory. Because God is concerned first and foremost, his greatest passion, rightfully so, is his own glory. And we should be consumed with God's glory because he has the greatest infinite kavod the greatest glory knowledge of the Lord and the glory of the Lord are inextricably linked you cannot know God without glorifying God you cannot glorify God without experiencing and knowing him they're tied together folks knowledge and glory glory and knowledge to experience his glory is to know him knowing him brings him glory and we cannot know him without experiencing and delighting in his glory and church. We were made for this. We were made for this. We were created to behold God's awesome splendor and delight in his character and worship him. That is, attribute greatest worth and value to him above all things. We were created for this. This is why we exist to worship him and give him glory, to know him and glorify him. Glory, knowledge, knowledge, glory. So look at verses 8 through 13. Pharaoh says, all right, I'll believe it when I see it. No, he wouldn't. Prove yourself, he says. Show me the power of this great God that you serve. And so Aaron takes his staff And throws it down and transforms into a serpent. Now, I am terrified of snakes, so I mean, I would be, ah! Right? I can't stand snakes, but neither can Indiana Jones. So maybe I'm in good company. I don't know. But Aaron takes his staff, throws it down, turns into a serpent. See, to turn inanimate wood into a living, breathing animal is nothing for God. That's the tip of the iceberg of his infinite power. Serpents were considered wise, magical creatures in Egypt. In fact, on Pharaoh's crown, you've seen pictures or in the movies shows, there was an image of a snake to symbolize his power, his protection, to threaten and warn his enemies, command respect. Everything God does is deliberate. So God is saying, oh, you want to challenge me for authority and supremacy and power? Okay, Let's do this, let's dance. And so he throws down the staff, it turns into a snake. But the magicians, it says, by secret arts do the same. Now, perhaps by trickery or illusion or maybe by demonic power, we don't know. But either way, they mimic God's glory. Cheap imitation. And so many things in our world are cheap knockoffs. Again, seeking to rob God of his glory while no one and nothing is like our holy and glorious God. Do not give in to the illusions. So Aaron throws down his staff, turns in a serpent. They do the same. And I love this, this is hilarious. Aaron's staff serpent eats the other serpents. God is showing, all right, I'll show you who has complete supremacy and superiority. And then we look at verses 14 through 25, and again, God says, let my people go that they may worship me. So we see the first plague here, water into blood, which kills the fish in the Nile River. Everything God does, again, is intentional. There's no such thing as coincidences. Coincidences don't exist. God is not the God of coincidence. He is sovereign. So why this plague? Well, he says it right here. Look at the the verse, verse 17. By this you shall what? Know, Yada, that I am the Lord. Now many scholars believe that the plagues, all ten plagues, were a direct affront to the Egyptian gods that they worshipped. They had this vast, you know, pantheon of gods that they worshiped. And they had a God of the sun and a god of the moon and a god of the water, a god of the river, a god of the plants. God's of various animals, and the Lord is showing that he alone is God. He is Lord over all, not just part of creation, all of it. In fact, plagues two, three, and four feature pests that come from water, land, and air. The three parts of our ecosystem, water, land, and air. God is the God of all nature, not the God of fill-in-the-blank, God of this, God of that. He's the God of all of it. So, here he turns water into blood. Now, why blood? Well, they considered the Egyptians, the Nile, to be a divine giver of life. They almost worshipped the Nile. They believed that it was the sacred bloodstream of various gods. Plus, what did the Egyptians do to the Israelite male babies? What did they do? Threw them into the river. Savagely murdered them. Genocide. Ethnocide. And so it's like the Nile River displays here the blood guilt of the innocent lives they have taken. Blood was on their hands metaphorically. Now blood is on their hands literally. Now some have tried to explain away the plagues with natural occurrences. Like I I read about, there's some atheist, agnostic scholars who are like, well... Maybe it was just high tide in the Nile, and so some red algae moved in, some bacteria moved in, and when the sun is low, like in sunrise or sunset, it reflects off the water just right off that red algae, and it looks like blood. Really? You think the people were awed by algae? Plus, this wasn't a gradual change like algae would cause. It was an immediate transformation. And the reservoirs, the water containers not attached to the Nile also turn to blood. Folks, these are not natural events. These are supernatural happenings by a supernatural God. But the magicians again copied this. And so again, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Truly, denial is more than just a river in Egypt. Oh. Boo. I had to. You know I had to. But look what it says. Pharaoh did not even take this to heart. Completely unaffected, completely unfazed. Malachi 2.2 says, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor or glory, some translations say, same word. What word do you think that is, by the way? Kavod. In case you haven't realized, that's the Hebrew word of the day, kavod. If you will not take it to heart to give kavod, glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, that I will curse, I will send a curse upon you, I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Knowledge and glory, glory and knowledge. Look at chapter 8. Second plague. Frogs. Frogs were everywhere. Now, we all know that boy on the playground who would find the toad, find a frog, and, <laughs> and chase around everybody, and ah! Oh, they're screaming, right? Some of you are like, yeah, that's my boy. <laughs> oh, Johnny, you know. Now imagine a few, I don't like frogs. A few are to gross. Imagine thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Frogs were everywhere. They're in your kitchen. They're in your oven. They're in your cookware. They're in your bedroom. They're in your bed. They're in the bathroom. You have no privacy. Frogs are everywhere. Now why frogs? Again, it's an affront by God to false gods. They revered frogs. They worshipped them heavily as a symbol of fertility. But here again, the magicians did the same by their secret arts and they produced frogs. Now here's what I find fascinating. Pharaoh didn't want more frogs. His magicians produced more frogs. He's like, no, 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 I don't want more frogs. I want the frogs to go away. But they couldn't do that. They're impotent compared to God. They, They had no true power. And with the first plague, Pharaoh was unimpressed. Now, this time, he begs Moses and Aaron. He's greatly affected. Please intercede for us. Please pray for me. Please call upon your Lord. And then I will let the people go. So Moses agrees to pray. He asks Pharaoh, when do you want me to do this? When should the Lord remove these frogs? Now, why would he ask that? Like Pharaoh would be, oh, I don't know. Let me check my calendar. How's three o'clock this Friday? No, he says tomorrow. He's meaning immediate. Moses is asking him this to prove this is not a natural occurrence. This is not happenstance. This is the supernatural controlled by God. And I'm doing this, again, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. No one like him. So sure enough... God removes the frogs, they die, and they gather them together in disgusting, massive, stinking piles. Literally, it says heaps upon heaps. Think about heaps and heaps of thousands of dead frog carcasses. There's some nice potpourri. Verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. and would not listen to them, which is as the Lord had said. So, Pharaoh goes back on his word. It's fake repentance. And sadly, I see this in ministry sometimes. You know, 2 Corinthians 7 talks about godly grief and worldly grief. This is worldly grief. Worldly grief is sad about the consequences. So, when those consequences are removed, when the pain and suffering is removed, they go right back to where they were. No change. Pharaoh's heart is unchanged, it is cavode, it is heavy, it's calloused. Now, look at verses 16 through 19. Third plague. Gnats, although literally it actually says small vermin. So scholars don't know if it was gnats, lice, ticks, fleas. Some scholars believe mosquitoes. I agreed. You know why? Because those blood-sucking vampires of the animal kingdom proves evil exists. They're the worst. I mean, you get just a few mosquitoes buzzing around you. You get mosquito bites everywhere. It ruins your day. It ruins your picnic. It ruins your camping trip. Now imagine. Billions, or at least millions of them. Uh, when Skye and I were early on in our marriage, we got to do a mission trip, like we were talking about with go trips. We went to Brazil with a group and we were ministering along the Amazon River. So we we were mostly at a village and we, we stayed on the boat at night. And I remember I got up in the middle of the night and I walk in the boat to where the bathroom was and I turn on the light, and the light was very dim. It was flickering. You could barely see what's going on. And I'm, go, I'm using the restroom, and I get done, and I'm washing my hands, and I look up, and I go, huh, I thought the walls were white. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry if you're squeamish. <laughs> That's how I know this is good, Denise. So the walls were black and moving. And I'm like, nah, it can't be right. And I look up, and it's mosquitoes, layers of them, thousands on thousands of them. Now, I ran out of there. Right? Now, miraculously, I didn't get him a single mosquito bite, at least not then. But I, I can imagine everything would be like that. They would be on everything, everything. And they had no screen doors, no screen windows, no bug zappers, no bug spray. Now, look at verses 18 and 19. Pharaoh's magicians now could not manufacture a miracle. They could not create animate life from inanimate dust. In fact, they tell Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We give up. No magic, no illusions, no cheap trickery, no parlor tricks, no demonic power. We are confronting God, and we're not going up against him anymore. And from that point on, they no longer tried to duplicate his signs. They got it. God demonstrate himself to be great and powerful. Now look at verses 20 through 32. God, in a play on words, tells Pharaoh, if you do not send out my people, I will send in swarms of flies. So send out, or I'm going to send in. So we see the fourth plague, flies. People couldn't eat without ingesting flies. They couldn't sleep without flies covering their bodies. They couldn't work because they were constantly swatting flies. Shoo fly, don't bother me, except these were swarms of flies. They couldn't see well through the swarms. Their skins were welted by fly bites. These flies wreaked havoc on the land. Verse 24 actually says the land was ruined. Look at verse 22 and 23. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, says the Lord, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may, what? Know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people tomorrow This will happen. So God sets apart his people. Millions of flies among the Egyptians, not a single fly among the Israelites. That you may know that I am the Lord in all the earth. Know that God is holy. He is set apart. He's unique. And when you follow the Lord, when you trust in him, he sets you apart. He makes you holy. You are now set apart for him. He says there's a division between my people and your people. A a holy distinction. And people who follow the Lord are different than the world that rejects God. They live differently because they value God most. They worship God, not creation. They glorify God, not self. So Pharaoh agrees to let the people worship God. He concedes to give them, all right, I'll give you a few PTO days for your little wilderness religious vacation but you have to do it here in the land of Egypt. And thus begins this back and forth negotiation. Moses says, no, 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 no. That would not be right. If we're sacrificing animals to our God and you Egyptians worship animals, no. That would be like slaughtering a pig in a Muslim mosque or killing a cow in a Hindu temple. No, no, that would anger the people. They would attack us. No, we're not, we're not giving into that. So here's the thing. When you trust in Jesus, you live Differently than the world because you see the world differently. We become what we behold. So when you behold Jesus, when you treasure Jesus, when you delight in Jesus, you start to become like Jesus. Be holy as I am holy, God says. Not that that's our own doing, but when we look upon the Holy God and trust in the Holy God, He starts changing us from the inside out. He starts making us holy. There's a holy distinction. So if you follow Jesus, our world will find you strange. You will be persecuted. You will be mocked. Well, every fly is removed from the land, but again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Lastly, the last one we're going to look at today, look at chapter 9, the fifth plague. Egyptian livestock die. All the animals in the field for the Egyptians, the cows, the horses, the donkeys, the sheep, the goats, die. God is taking aim at animal worship. Once again, you have a holy distinction. Egypt's livestock in the field die from a very severe disease. But look what it says. But nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die, not a single one. Well, Pharaoh's heart is kavod, it's calloused, it's heavy, and he refuses to bow his will, refuses to submit his glory to God's So his stubborn, rebellious pride persists. And now you have the showdown. The showdown between the people of God and the unrighteous world. Between God and Satan. Between sinful worship of self and God's created, intended design to worship and enjoy him forever. That's what's at stake here. In this vast scene with these plagues, that's what's going on. Now what in the world does all this have to do with Mission Sunday? I'm so glad you asked. Here's a quote from John Piper. I have to read this. This is so good. He says, worship is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because we simply aim to bring all nations, all ethnos in Greek, that's where we get our word ethnicities, people groups, into the white hot enjoyment of God's Glory! There it is! It's God's glory that drives missions. It's God's glory that should uh, be the impetus for us to want to know God more and delight in Him and help others do the same. He says the biblical vision of God then is that He is supremely committed with infinite passion to uphold and display the glory of His name. And the biblical vision of man without grace is that He suppresses this truth and by nature, Finds more joy in his own glory than he does in God's. God exists to be worshiped, and man worships the work of his own hands. And this twofold reality creates the critical need for missions, and the very God centeredness of God, which creates the crisis, also creates the solution. Mm. God created us for his glory, his zeal is for his glory. Because he knows, and we should know, that when we know him and when we experience him, he is all-satisfying. He, in him, is eternal joy and bliss. We were created to know him. We were created to glorify him. Knowledge, glory, glory, knowledge. Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. To see and savor the glory of God is to enjoy him and to delight in him forever. Again, the root word for knowledge, what do you think it is here? It's yada to know by experience, knowledge and glory. Now, how much of the sea is covered by water? Like, how much of the oceans are filled with water? This is a trick question. Yes, all of it. God knows what he's saying here. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth, not if, will. Now, how is that true? Because the reality is that not everyone knows God yet. In fact, many people have no idea who Jesus is. Do you realize that over 3 billion, 3.3 billion, not million, 3.3 billion people in our world not only don't know who Jesus is, they have no access to knowing Jesus. They don't know a Christian personally. There's no local church in their community. They have no access to resources because their country they live in uh, has blocked all access to, to Christian uh, gospel So they don't know Jesus, and they, as of now, can't, won't, don't have access to Jesus unless someone goes to tell them. Now do you see why missions is so important? Now, this may also be describing your neighbor. Your neighbor across the street may have heard of Jesus, but they have no idea who he is. This is what drives our missional pursuits locally and globally. See, everyone will experience and know the glory of God. Because there are two ways to experience the glory of God, either as recipients of his just wrath or objects of his grace. And we want people to experience God's glory through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus. We want people to know Jesus. And so God desires all to know him in his glory, And when we truly know God, when we experience his glory, we cannot help but to want others to know him.